For much of the 20th century, tens of thousands of cities in the United States used various methods to keep minorities from settling within their borders, making it known that even those who worked in the area should be gone by dark. Today we're discussing sundown towns of Chicago. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. This episode deals with issues that may be upsetting for delicate ears. Listener discretion is advised. Helping me share this story is author and educator Ernest Krim III, a native of Chicago's Southside and a Black History Application Specialist who uses Black History to empower and educate families and train educators on how to reach their students most effectively in a culturally compliant manner. Mr. Krim is a passionate progressive education activist who has been featured on such notable outlets as PBS, CBS, NBC, and Newsweek. Mr. Krim, welcome. Hey, Tommy. Thanks for having me, brother. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Looking forward to having this conversation, although it's not something that, um, of course, is pleasing to the ears. It's, I think it's a history that we have to grapple with. That is absolutely true. Um, speaking of education, uh, you taught high school for 12 years before branching out on your own. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm a, I graduated from Mount Greenwood Elementary and Morgan Park High School. I taught for two years at an alternative school in Roseland, and I taught for 10 years at Joliet Central. Um, you know, those kids that I was able to teach in those 12 years, some of the like the best experience of my life, you know, the, the problem with education and part of the reason why I decided to leave, it had nothing to do with them. You know, um, they were the reason I got into the field and being able to see the impact of teaching them and, and, and shining the light on how our history is still relevant to today was one of the things that I hold near and dear to my heart. Tell me more about what you do now. Yeah, so I do a few things. Uh, the main thing I do is I call myself now, and I've just started using this term, I'm a public teacher, because although I resigned from teaching in a school setting, I still teach around the world through uh, speaking engagements. I have, uh, I'm have i a content creator, so I have uh, Instagram and TikTok with a sizable following, and I create Black history content on almost a daily basis. And I also have an online K-5 through course, Black history, and I'm also an author of two books. The first book is uh, Black History Saved My Life, and there's a, a correlation to these stories that we'll be talking about. This story, this book talks about how in 2016, my wife and I were the targets of a hate crime um, at the South Shore Cultural Center, and the lady who attacked us with the N-word and spat on us probably lives in an area that may have been a sundown town. It was a southwest suburb that was, uh, you know, around the Oak Lawn area. I think maybe it's around Midlothian, something like that. And this book discusses how that, although was a very painful moment for me, was not the most racist thing I endured. So I take the readers through a journey of, of talking about systemic racism when I was bused to Mount Greenwood, um, which I would say, you know, is, is a, essentially a sundown neighborhood. <laughs> and then I then I talk about some of the more contemporary issues that I faced leading up to that move uh, to that incident in 2016. And then with my second book, The ABCs of Affirming Black Children, I'm essentially uh, reverse engineering what I think helped me traverse through uh, being raised in a racist society. And one of the most important things was being affirmed by my parents growing up. 
So I have 26 affirmations in that book, uh, 26 facts about black history. So it's not just affirming kids. It's also teaching them about the history at the same time, because when you learn about racism like this, I think it's important for people to understand that just like James Lowen says, you know, we, you, you own it, you know what happened. Um, you, you take it in, but then you say, what's next? How can I be the solution to this issue? Well, let's get into it. In addition to newspaper archives, much of the source material for this episode comes from James W. Lowen's 2005 book, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism, later updated in 2018. Lowen was an American sociologist, historian, and author from Decatur, Illinois, who also wrote the 1995 book, Lies My Teacher Told Me Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong. There are links to those books and others in the show's notes. So the reason places were called sundown towns, some in decades past went as far as to play signs at their city limits with some variation of wording that read N word. Don't let the sun go down on you in whatever town there was. Uh, one town down state had a nightly siren that went off at 6 p.m. as a reminder to those who were not welcome after hours to depart quickly. According to Lowen, when he started researching sundown towns, he expected to find 10 in Illinois and maybe 50 across the country. In the 2018 version of his book, he revised his estimate to 507 towns in Illinois that would qualify as having been sundown towns. That, by the way, is two thirds of all the towns in the state. That's a startling statistic. And, you know, this episode, by the way, y'all, it's not just about black Americans being kept out of communities. Uh, sundown towns affected a lot of different people. We're talking Hispanics, Asian Americans, Native Americans. We're talking Jews, Catholics, and many others who were not readily acceptable into white communities. So to keep this from being super long, some passages have been condensed. Also, while many parts of Illinois had and still likely have what would be called a sundown town, we'd figure we'd keep this to a 50-mile distance from downtown Chicago. Quick refresher, all right? During the Great Migration, a period between 1916 to 1970, over 6 million Black Americans left the South in search of a better life in cities in the North, such as Chicago. They settled in areas close to where job opportunities were more likely, such as factories and the steel mills on the South Side. As other industries took root in other areas of the city, and the expanding suburbs, Black Americans in Chicago looked to move out of apartments and into crowded neighborhoods closer to their employers and maybe get a nice house with the yard. What they got was doors figuratively and literally slammed in their faces by realtors and sellers unwilling to sell to them. One of the older suburbs of Chicago that was founded on the idea of keeping out those the town founder viewed as undesirable is Kenilworth, Illinois. Roughly 15 miles north of downtown Chicago, Kenilworth was founded in 1889 by Joseph Sears, no relation to the retail store chain. By 1896, the village had the required 300 residents and was incorporated. According to author Colleen Brown Kilner in her 1969 book, Joseph Sears and his Kenilworth, four of the principles Sears included in the village ordinance were, number one, large lots. Number two, high standards of construction. Number three, no alleys. And number four, sales to Caucasians only. By 1930, Kenilworth showed an African-American population of 4.3%, all live-in servants. As technology improved, less help was needed in those homes for laundry, washing dishes, and other chores. 
And by 1960, the percentage of live-in African-American servants in Kenilworth had dropped to 1.3%. In 1966, 46-year-old Harold Calhoun was an attorney with the U.S. Naturalization and Immigration Service in Chicago. His wife, Lillian, who was 42, was a reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. The Calhouns were also the only African-American family in Kenilworth. On Friday, May 20th of that year, Mr. and Mrs. Calhoun were out for the evening, leaving their 14-year-old daughter, Laura, to take care of her three younger siblings, Harold, who was 12, Walter, who was 8, and Karen, who was 5. That night, neighbors of the Calhouns were the first to see it. An 8-foot-tall wooden cross the symbol of hate predominantly used by the Ku Klux Klan, burning in the front yard of the Calhoun home on Melrose Avenue. The cross, made of two-by-fours, had its cross beam and top section wrapped in burlap that had been soaked in a flammable liquid. Fortunately, only the oldest of the Calhoun kids witnessed the burning cross. According to an article in the Wilmette Life newspaper, quote, Kenilworth officials this week expressed shock over Friday night's cross burning on the lawn of the village's only Negro family and promised to use every source available to find the offenders, end quote. Many of the newspapers reporting on the incident quoted police saying it was probably teenage pranksters who set up the cross and lit it afire as no KKK activity had been noted in the area. Even after this horrible incident, the Calhoun family stayed in their home for another decade. Four years after the cross burning, two teenagers visited Harold Calhoun's downtown Chicago office. By then, Calhoun had become the assistant district director for the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service for the Midwest. The teens admitted to what they had done that night back in May of 1966, expressing remorse. The elder Calhoun reportedly thanked them for confessing to their deed. Now check this out. By the year 2000, Kenilworth did not have a single black household among its nearly 2,500 total residents. As of the 2020 census, there were 2,514 people residing in Kenilworth. 89% were white, 0.40% were black American, 0.24% were Native American, 4.18% were Asian, and 0.60% were from other races and 5.45% from two or more races, Hispanic or Latino of any race, were 4.1% of the population. While there are some who will say, well, Kenilworth is super pricey. Maybe those black Americans who want to live there just can't afford it. I'll respond with more from our author, James Lowen, on this topic, who pointed out in 2014 that almost 7,000 black families in the Chicago area had a higher annual income than the median Kenilworth family. Yet, not one of those families had chosen to live in Kenilworth. Now, certainly, Kenilworth's reputation as a sundown town, along with its continuing whiteness, surely had to be the factor. Oak Park, Illinois, approximately 10 miles due west of Chicago, is considered racially diverse today but Oak Park wasn't always as welcoming to non-whites. It was also a sundown town, which was never more evident than in 1950 when Dr. Percy L. Julian tried to move there. 
Dr. Julian, a grandson of a former Alabama slave, earned a doctorate in chemistry from the University of Vienna and synthesized cortisone in 1949. Julian created a chemical foam that was credited with saving thousands of lives of American soldiers by smothering gasoline flames from aircrafts. Julian's wife was the first African-American woman to earn a doctorate in sociology. In recognition for his contributions to science, Percy Julian had been named Chicagoan of the Year in 1949. When Dr. Julian bought a house at 515 North East Avenue in Oak Park in late 1950, locals were up in arms, more caught up in the color of his skin than all of his accomplishments. The water commissioner refused to turn on water to the home until Julian threatened legal action. In November of 1950, as the house was being prepared for the family to move in, arsonists splashed gas throughout the house and tried to set the structure ablaze. Threatening letters were sent to the home, including one that read Percy, his wife, and their 11- and 7-year-old children would be killed if they did not move out of Oak Park. The following June, a dynamite bomb was thrown from a moving car, landing four feet from the home. We have no particular desire to live in Oak Park, Julian was later quoted as saying, but our religious business and professional interests are all centered in that community. Having a guest violinist perform with the Oak Park River Forest Symphony Orchestra should have been amazing. Carol Anderson, 23, was a graduate of the Boston Conservatory of Music and had been invited to play by the orchestra's conductor, Milton Preeves. Oh, I forgot to mention, Carol Anderson was also black. After one rehearsal, a Mrs. Gustav Palmer, who was first cellist with the orchestra as well as president of the Symphony Association, called Carol Anderson and told her not to come back. Anderson was informed her presence on stage would mean the community would withdraw its support of the orchestra. Symphony Association President Palmer was quoted as saying, We don't know if anyone would object to the orchestras being integrated, but we weren't going to find out on our own. We're not a band of crusaders. Wow. Upon hearing about how Anderson was treated, Milton Preeves, the conductor who had held that position for eight years, resigned in protest. Other musicians in the orchestra did as well. The board acted quickly to try to remedy the situation, inviting Anderson to perform after all. Preeves agreed to conduct that night but said he would not return to the symphony. Roughly 750 people attended the concert in the Oak Park River Forest High School Auditorium. After the performance, Anderson received warm applause. One of the few African Americans in the audience that night was her father, who traveled from Delaware to see his daughter play. Carol Anderson said of the experience, I am not bitter about what happened, but I don't suppose that I can forget the incident for a long time. Oak Park passed the Open Housing Ordinance in 1968, which helped devise strategies to integrate the village. The black population of Oak Park grew gradually from less than 1% in 1970 to 11% in 1980 to 19% in 1990 22% in 2000, and in 2010, the black American population was essentially unchanged from 10 years earlier, but by 2020, it had dipped to right around 19%.
On the western edge of Deerfield lies Wilmot Road, named for the original settlers of the area who were active in the Underground Railroad before the Civil War. By 1959, Deerfield's population was an estimated 10,500, sizable for a town that had no significant industry. The jump in population was the result of the suburbs pushing further north, aided by expanding freeways and rail service. Roughly 3,000 commuters took trains or drove cars from Deerfield, mostly to Chicago, for work, returning at the end of the day to their comfortable suburb. In 1959, a new housing subdivision was announced by the Progress Development Corporation. Their plan was to build 51 homes, all in the $30,000 price range, which was right in line with homes in the area at that time. Of those 51 homes, 10 to 12 would be offered to Black American families. Construction on two model homes began on September 24th, 1959. Deerfield had never had a black American family living within its borders. Before then, some of the Protestant families in Deerfield weren't even comfortable living near Jews, Unitarians, or even Catholics. According to the 1962 book, But Not Next Door, by authors David Rosen and Harry uh, M. Rosen, the developer met with various clergy around Deerfield in late November to let them know their plans to integrate the new neighborhood, asking them to share the information with their parishioners during holiday services, when most residents would presumably be of good cheer. Instead, one of the clergy almost immediately shared the information with a few parishioners, and word spread quickly, y'all. Bob Danny, 39, bought his house in Deerfield in 1957. Although he worked in the loop, the commute wasn't too bad, and his wife, Helen, who was 37, liked their big yard and their neighbors. Their three kids, who were 12, 9, and 6 in 1959, attended Wilmot School just five blocks from their home. When Bob Danning told his wife, Helen, the news about the progressive development, she responded, Good heavens, Bob, the whole place will go black. We're not bigots, claimed Bob Danning. We don't go around calling people names, and I don't think we want to deny Negroes or anybody else the right to a decent home, just as good as ours, but not next door. While the request to purchase the land saw no objections initially, when more residents found out about the plans, they were up in arms. Many said they weren't racist, they just objected to the way the developer had hidden their plans. When pressed, those same residents admitted they likely would have said no even if they had known about the plans. While the community had little interest in acquiring the land before the progressive development team bought it, suddenly there was a renewed interest. Building violations seemingly popped up out of nowhere and a referendum was called. A referendum held on December 21, 1959 resulted in an 86% voter turnout with the acquisitions approved by a two-to-one majority. There were lawsuits and the town had to pony up the money to buy out the developer, which they eventually did. The two model homes were eventually completed and are still there today, with the rest of the area that was planned for integrated housing becoming a park and community pool. As of the 2020 census, Deerfield is 87.82% white. And check this out. 0.71% African-American.
a while back, I did an episode on the 1951 race riots in Cicero, which occurred when World War II veteran Harvey Clark and his family tried to move into an apartment in the all-white area. Look for episode 224 if you'd like to hear the whole disturbing story. Sadly, that wasn't the last horrifying incident within the town on the west side of Chicago. Fifteen years after the Clark incident, African Americans were still not allowed to live in Cicero, although 15,000 blacks worked in factories and stores five days a week. In May of 1966, 17-year-old Jerome Huey traveled to Cicero for a job interview with a freight company. Huey's family owned a failing grocery store, and Jerome reportedly was looking for work to help contribute to his family's finances. A solid student at Wilson Junior College, he planned to join the Army, and after his tour of duty, he wanted to study engineering at the University of Illinois. As he walked near 25th and Laramie, four white youths started following him, which turned into a chase. When the group caught up with Huey, they beat him with a bat and stomped on him while he lay on the ground. Jerome Huey died two days later at McNeil Hospital in Berwyn. It was not lost on some that so many men had survived their time in Vietnam, but Huey went to Cicero and died. At a civil rights march in Cicero that September, demonstrators were hit with a barrage of thrown bottles and other projectiles. Police and the National Guard were called out to keep the peace. In the late 1990s, when members of the Ku Klux Klan planned a rally in Cicero, local activists and residents protested, and the demonstration was canceled. Cicero's 2020 census reflects 6.25% whites, 3.37% African-Americans, and 89% Hispanic or Latino population, possibly the biggest shift in all of the towns we're talking about today. Now check this out, y'all. If you aren't familiar with Naperville, Illinois, it's one of those towns that pops up on a lot of best places to live in the U.S. list. Naperville is situated about 33 miles west and a little south of downtown Chicago. During the early part of the 20th century, it was relatively small, but starting in the 1990s saw a significant increase in population as housing was built in a place of farmland. Back in the 1930s, Naperville had a population of just over 5,000 people. All of them were white. The following is from the March 10th, 1938 California Eagle, an African-American newspaper out of Los Angeles. One note though, the article refers to the college in Naperville as Illinois Central College, when it should have been North Central College. The headline reads, Pickens spends night in White Town, location Naperville, Illinois. And I quote, Although Negroes are not only barred from living here, but are traditionally not allowed to stay overnight, William Pickens, NAACP official, broke the barriers last week when, as a guest of Illinois Central College, he remained overnight with the family of the city's leading minister, Dr. Etter. Pickens spoke three times at the college while here and created such a good impression that students later asked, wouldn't it be a good thing if we could have some Negro students here? 
I spoke with Ron Isaac, Vice President of North Central College's African-American Alumni Association, who informed me one of the first black students to attend North Central was Nicholas Hood, who graduated from Purdue University in 1945 with a Bachelor of Science degree before transferring to North Central College for a year. Hood later became a minister and a civil rights activist, primarily in Detroit, where he also served on the Detroit City Council from 1965 to 1994. North Central's African-American Alumni Association scholarship is named in honor of Reverend Hood. In the 1960s, as part of the North Central College's affiliation with the United Methodist Church, students were required to attend chapel twice a week. George St. Angelo, a 1943 alumnus of North Central College who served as college chaplain, invited Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to come to Naperville in December of 1960 to speak on campus about civil rights. Although the college received some threatening letters and the newly installed president of the school, Arlo Schilling, received pressure to cancel the visit from the Baptist minister, King did indeed visit the campus without incident. He was, however, not allowed to spend the night in Naperville, instead being driven to nearby Aurora. St. Angela would later lead a group of North Central students to Selma, Alabama in March of 1965 to participate in civil rights demonstrations. Naperville once again found itself in the news for all the wrong reasons in 1966 when two black American scientists who worked for Bell Telephone Laboratories were unable to find suitable housing in the suburb. The scientists, who both held doctorates, claimed real estate agents would only show them properties in primarily black neighborhoods a great distance from their place of employment. This, by the way, was two years after Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was put into place, which bans discrimination in employment practices by employers based on race, sex, religion, or national origin. In addition to the actions of the real estate agents, it was shown Bell Labs did not attempt to find housing for its black employees, although the company did so for its other employees. Open housing legislation was eventually passed by the Naperville City Council in July of 1968. Even when towns become more diverse, racist events that occur in those towns do not paint them in a positive light, as many saw in October of 2019 at a Buffalo Wild Wings in Naperville. As a group of nearly 20 people, some as young as five, entered the establishment for a child's party, the restaurant's host asked Justin Vall, one of the people in the party, what race he was. When Vall asked why that mattered, he said the host replied, we have a regular customer here who doesn't want to sit around black people. Vall said the group sat down near the customer who shared his complaint anyway. One manager walked over to apologize to the group, but another manager later asked the party to move to another table because that one was reserved. After the incident, the franchise announced that the two employees in question had been fired and others would undergo sensitivity training. It said the customer whose complaint started the trouble would be banned for life after change more than 1,200 restaurants. For anyone thinking, oh, that was just a one-off incident, the Buffalo Wild Wings issue occurred just a few months after a clerk at a Naperville gas station was captured on video telling Hispanic customers that they need to go back to their country. The clerk was later fired. As of the 2020 census, 
there were 149,540 people and 52,648 households in, in Naperville. The racial breakdown of the city was about 64% white, 22% Asian, 5% Black American, and 0.17% Native American, 0.03% Pacific Islander, 2.23% from other races, and about 7% from two or more races. Hispanic or Latino of any race were about 7% of the population. The fourth largest city in Illinois has a black American population of only 5%. That just doesn't make sense. In 1966, Dr. Martin Luther King visited Chicago during the Freedom Movement Campaign for Fair Housing. As he led a march through Marquette Park on the city's southwest side, he was attacked with bricks by a racist white mob. He would later say, quote, I've been in the civil rights movement for many years all through the South, but I have never seen, not even in Alabama or Louisiana, mobs as hostile and hateful as this crowd, end quote. Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, and one week later, on April 11th, 1968, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which was meant as a follow-up to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The 1968 Act expanded on previous acts and prohibited discrimination concerning the sale, rental, and financing of housing based on race, religion, national origin, sex, and, as amended, handicap and family status. Title VIII of the Act is also known as the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Author James Lowen, who passed away in 2021, had a simple suggestion for any former or current sundown town that still reflects an overwhelmingly white demography. Those towns should be asked to make three statements. One, admit it, admit it, say we did this. Two, apologize for it, say we did this and it was wrong. Three, proclaim they now welcome residents of all races. Seriously, just say we did this, it was wrong, and we don't do it anymore. History isn't always pretty, but there is much to be learned from the mistakes of the past in order to create a better future. listening to today's episode about the sundown towns of chicago special thanks to my guest ernest crim the third find out more about mr crim at the links in the show's notes i have a list of links to books as well as other related items in the show's notes as well as on the chicago history podcast website at chicagohistorypod.com if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me would like to learn more anything ordered through those links not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thank you, John. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. 
And we'll be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.